I don't know who needs to hear this, but we have just quietly released the first episode of our long-awaited audiobook adaption of Jane Austen's Persuasion. We've submitted it to all the usual streaming platforms, so go and search for it where you listen to podcasts to see it, to see it, to find it, to listen to it. I think that's the point. Podcasts, you don't use your eyes, you use your ears. Anyway, it's going to be available there soon, so you should go and find it um, and see if it's available yet. For more info about the podcast, visit our website, which is www.bnt.org.au. Chapter 6. The ladies of Longbourn soon waited on those of Netherfield. The visit was soon returned in due form. Miss Bennet's pleasing manners grew on the goodwill of Mrs. Hurst and Miss Bingley, and though the mother was found to be intolerable, and the younger sisters not worth speaking to, a wish of being better acquainted with them was expressed towards the two eldest. By Jane, this attention was received with the greatest pleasure, but Elizabeth still saw superciliousness in their treatment of everybody, hardly excepting even her sister, and could not like them. Though their kindness to Jane, such as it was, had a value as arising in all probability from the influence of their brother's admiration. It was generally evident whenever they met that he did admire her, and to her it was equally evident that Jane was yielding to the preference which she had begun to entertain for him from the first, and was in a way of being very much in love, but she considered with pleasure that it was not likely to be discovered by the world in general since Jane united, with great strength of feeling, a composure of temper and a uniform cheerfulness of manner which would guard her from the suspicions of the impertinent. She mentioned this to her friend, Miss Lucas. It may perhaps be uh, pleasant to be able to impose on the public in such a case, but it is sometimes a disadvantage to be so very guarded. <laughs> if a woman conceals her affection with the same skill from the object of it, she may lose the opportunity of fixing him, and it will then be but poor consolation to believe the world equally in the dark. Really? <laughs> there is so much of gratitude or vanity in almost every attachment that it is not safe to leave any to itself without encouragement. In nine cases out of ten, a woman had better show more affection than she feels. I must he likes say. your sister, undoubtedly, but he may never do more than love her <laughs> if she does not help him on. But she does help him on, Charlotte. Much as her nature will allow, if I can perceive her regard for him, he must be a simpleton indeed not to discover it too. <laughs> Remember, Eliza, that he does not know Jane's disposition as you do. Ah, uh, but if a woman is partial to a man and does not endeavour to conceal it, well, he must find it out. Perhaps he must, if he sees enough of her. But though Bingley and Jane meet tolerably often, it is never for many hours together. And as they always see each other in large mixed parties, it is impossible that every moment should be employed in conversing together. Jane should therefore <laughs> make the most of every half hour in which she can command his attention. When she is secure of him, there will be more leisure for falling in love as much as she chooses. <laughs> oh, your plan is a good one. Where nothing is in question but the desire of being well married. 
And if I were determined to get a rich husband, or <laughs> any husband, <laughs> I dare say I should adopt it. <laughs> but these are not Jane's feelings. She is not acting by design. As yet, she cannot even be certain of the degree of her own regard, nor of its reasonableness. She has known him only a fortnight, Charlotte. She danced four dancers with him at Meryton. She had... She saw him one morning at his own house and has since dined with him in company four times. That is not quite enough to make her understand his character. Not as you represent it. Had she merely dined with him, she might only have discovered whether he had a good appetite. <laughs> but you must remember that four evenings have also been spent together. And four evenings may do a great deal. Yes. Yes, yes, these four evenings have enabled them to ascertain that they both like Vington better than commerce. <laughs> well, with respect to any other leading characteristic, I, I do not imagine that much has been unfolded. Well, I wish Jane success with all my heart. And if she were married to him tomorrow, I should think she has as good a chance of happiness as if she were to be studying his character for a 12 month. Happiness in marriage is entirely a matter of chance. <laughs> if the dispositions of the parties are ever so well known to each other, or ever so similar beforehand, it does not advance their felicity in the least. Really? They always continue to grow sufficiently unlike afterwards to have their share of vexation. <laughs> and it is better to know as little as possible of the defects of the person with whom you are to pass your life. Oh, Charlotte, you do make me laugh. <laughs> but it is not sound. You know it is not sound. And that you would never act in such a way yourself. Occupied in observing Mr Bingley's attentions to her sister, Elizabeth was far from suspecting that she was, herself, becoming an object of some interest in the eyes of his friend. Mr Darcy had, at first, scarcely allowed her to be pretty, he had looked at her without admiration at the ball, and when they next met, he looked at her only to criticise. But no sooner had he made it clear to himself and his friends that she hardly had a good feature in her face, than he began to find it was rendered uncommonly intelligent by the beautiful expression of her dark eyes. To this discovery succeeded some others equally mortifying. Though he had detected with a critical eye more than one failure of perfect symmetry in her form, he was forced to acknowledge her figure to be light and pleasing, and in spite of his asserting that her manners were not those of the fashionable world, he was caught by their easy playfulness. Of this she was perfectly unaware. To her, he was the only man who made himself agreeable nowhere, and who had not thought her handsome enough to dance with. He began to wish to know more of her, and, as a step towards conversation with her himself, attended to her conversation with others. His doing so drew her notice. It was at Sir William Lucas's where a large party was assembled. Charlotte, what does Mr Darcy mean by listening to my conversation with Colonel Forster? That is a question which Mr Darcy only can answer. But if he does it any more, I shall certainly let him know that I see what he is about. He has a very satirical eye, and if I do not begin by being impertinent myself... I shall soon grow afraid of him. On his approaching them soon afterwards, though without seeming to have any intention of speaking, 
Miss Lucas defied her friend to mention such a subject to him, which immediately provoking Elizabeth to do, she turned to him and said, <clears throat> Did you not think, Mr Darcy, that I expressed myself uncommonly well just now when I was teasing Colonel Forster to give us a ball at Meryton? With great energy. But it is always a subject which makes a lady energetic. You are severe on us. <laughs> it will be her turn soon to be teased. I am going to open the instrument, Eliza. And you know what follows. You are a very strange creature by way of a friend. Always wanting me to play and sing before anybody and everybody. If my vanity had taken a musical turn, you would have been invaluable, but... As it is, I would really rather not sit you down must. before those... You must. You must be in the habit of hearing the very best performers. Oh, Eliza, you must. On Miss Lucas's persevering, however, she added, <sighs> Very well. If it must be so, it must. There is a fine old saying, which everybody here is, of course, familiar with. Keep your breath to cool your porridge, and I shall keep mine to swell my soul. Her performance was pleasing, though by no means capital. After a song or two, and before she could reply to the entreaties of several that she would sing again, she was eagerly succeeded at the instrument by her sister Mary, who having, in consequence of being the only plain one in the family, worked hard for knowledge and accomplishments, was always impatient for display. Mary had neither genius nor taste, and though vanity had given her application, it had given her likewise a pedantic air and conceited manner, that would have injured a higher degree of excellence than she had reached. Elizabeth, easy and unaffected, had been listening to with much more pleasure, though not playing half so well, and Mary, at the end of a long concerto, was glad to purchase praise and gratitude by Scotch and Irish heirs, at the request of her younger sisters, who, with some of the Lucases and two or three officers, joined eagerly in dancing at one end of the room. Mr. Darcy stood near them in silent indignation at such a mode of passing the evening, to the exclusion of all conversation, and was too much engrossed by his thoughts to perceive that Sir William Lucas was his neighbour, till Sir William thus began. What a charming amusement for young people this is, Mr. Darcy. There is nothing like dancing after all. I consider it as one of the first refinements of polished society. Certainly, sir. And it has the advantage also of being in vogue amongst the less polished societies of the world. Every savage can dance. Sir William only smiled. Your friend performs delightfully. He continued after a pause, on seeing Bingley join the group. And I doubt not that you are an adept in the science yourself, Mr. Darcy? You saw me dance at Meryton, I believe, sir. Yes, indeed, and received no inconsiderable pleasure from the sight. Do you often dance at St. James's? Never, sir. Do you not think it would be a proper compliment to the place? It is a compliment which I never pay to any place, if I can avoid it. You have a house in town, I conclude? Mr. Darcy bowed. I had once had some thought of fixing in town myself, for I am fond of superior society, but I did not feel quite certain that the air of London would agree with Lady Lucas. He paused, in hopes of an answer, but his companion was not disposed to make any, and Elizabeth at that instant moving towards them, 
he was struck with the action of doing a very gallant thing and called out to her. My dear Miss Eliza, why are you not dancing? Mr. Darcy, you must allow me to present this young lady to you as a very desirable partner. You cannot refuse to dance, I am sure, when so much beauty is before you. And, taking her hand, he would have given it to Mr. Darcy, who, though extremely surprised, was not unwilling to receive it, when she instantly drew back and said with some discomposure to Sir William, Indeed, sir, I have not the least intention of dancing. I, I, I entreat you not to suppose that I moved this way in order to beg for a partner. May I be allowed the honour of your hand, Miss Bennet? But it was in vain. Elizabeth was determined. Nor did Sir William at all shake her purpose by his attempt at persuasion. You excel so much in the dance, Miss Eliza, that it is cruel to deny me the happiness of seeing you. And though this gentleman dislikes the amusement in general, he can have no objection, I am sure, to oblige us for one half hour. Mr. Darcy's all politeness. He is indeed. But considering the inducement, my dear Miss Eliza, we cannot wonder at his complacence. For who would object to such a partner? Elizabeth looked archly and turned away. Her resistance had not injured her with the gentleman, and he was thinking of her with some complacency when thus accosted by Miss Bingley. I can guess the subject of your reverie. I should imagine not. You are considering how insupportable it would be to pass many evenings in this manner, in such society. And indeed, I am quite of your opinion. I was never more annoyed. The insipidity and yet the noise, the the nothingness and yet the self-importance of all those people. <laughs> what would I give to hear your strictures on them? Your conjecture is totally wrong, I assure you. My mind was more agreeably engaged. I've been meditating on the very great pleasure which a pair of fine eyes in the face of a pretty woman can bestow. Miss Bingley immediately fixed her eyes on his face and desired he would tell her what lady had the credit of inspiring such reflections. Mr. Darcy replied with great intrepidity. Miss Elizabeth Bennet. Miss Elizabeth Bennet? <laughs> I am all astonishment. How long has she been such a favourite? And pray, when am I to wish you joy? That is exactly the question which I expected you to ask. A lady's imagination is very rapid. It jumps from admiration to love, from love to matrimony in a moment. I knew you would be wishing me joy. Nay, if you are serious about it, I shall consider the matter is absolutely settled. Oh, you will be having a charming mother-in-law indeed. <laughs> And, of course, she will always be at Pemberley with you. <laughs> he listened to her with perfect indifference, while she chose to entertain herself in this manner. And, as his composure convinced her that all was safe, her wit flowed long. Chapter 7 Mr. Bennet's property consisted almost entirely in an estate of two thousand a year, which unfortunately for his daughters, was entailed, in default of heirs male, on a distant relation. And their mother's fortune, though ample for her station in life, could but ill supply the deficiency of his. 
Her father had been an attorney in Meryton and had left her £4,000. She had a sister married to a Mr Phillips who had been a clerk to their father and succeeded him in the business and a brother settled in London in a respectable line of trade. The village of Longbourn was only one mile from Meryton, a most convenient distance for the young ladies, who were usually tempted thither three or four times a week to pay their duty to their aunt and to a milliner's shop just over the way. The two youngest of the family, Catherine, or as she was better known by her family, Kitty, and Lydia, were particularly frequent in these attentions. Their minds were more vacant than their sisters, and when nothing better offered, a walk to Meryton was necessary to amuse their morning hours and furnish conversation for the evening. And however bare of news the country in general might be, they always contrived to learn some from their aunt. At present, indeed, they were well supplied both with news and happiness by the recent arrival of a militia regiment in the neighbourhood. It was to remain the whole winter, and Meryton was the headquarters. Their visit to Mrs Phillips was now productive of the most interesting intelligence. Every day added something to their knowledge of the officers' names and connections. Their lodging was not long a secret, and at length they began to know the officers themselves. Mr Phillips visited them all, and this opened to his nieces a store of felicity unknown before. They could talk of nothing but officers, and Mr Bingley's large fortune, the mention of which gave animation to their mother, was worthless in their eyes, when opposed to the regimentals of an ensign. After listening one morning to their effusions on the subject, Mr Bennett coolly observed, From all that I can collect by your manner of talking... You must be two of the silliest girls in the country. I have suspected it some time, but I am now convinced. Kitty was disconcerted and gave little answer. Oh, Papa, it is not so. But Lydia, with perfect indifference, continued to express her admiration for Captain Carter. I should very much hope to be seeing him through the course of the day, as he has told me he is going the next morning to London. I am astonished, my dear, that you should be so ready to think your own children silly. If I wished to think slightly of anybody's children, it should not be of my own, however. If my children are silly, I must hope to be always sensible of it. But, as it happens, they are, all of them, very clever. Oh, this is the only point, I flatter myself, on which we do not agree. I had hoped that our sentiments coincided in every particular. But I must so far differ from you as to think our two youngest daughters uncommonly foolish. My dear Mr Bennet... You must not expect such girls to have the sense of their father and mother. When they get to our age, I dare say they will not think about officers any more than we do. I remember the time when I liked a red coat myself very well. And if a smart young colonel with five or six thousand a year should want one of my girls... I shall not say nay to him. And I thought 
Colonel Forster looked very becoming the other night at Sir William's in his regimentals. Mama, <laughs> my aunt says that Colonel Forster and Captain Carter do not go so often to Mrs. Watson's as they did when they first came. She sees them now very often standing in Clark's library. Mrs. Bennet was prevented replying by the entrance of Mrs. Hill. Begging your pardon, ma'am, but there's a note from Miss Bennet. It has come from Netherfield and the footman has said he shall wait for an answer. Mrs. Bennet's eyes sparkled with pleasure and she was eagerly calling out while her daughter read. Well, Jane, who is it from? What is it about? What does he say? Well, Jane, make haste and tell us. Make haste, my love. It is from Miss Bingley. My dear friend, if you are not so compassionate as to dine today with Louisa and me, we shall be in danger of hating each other for the rest of our lives, for a whole day's tete-a-tete between two women can never end without a quarrel. Come as soon as you can on receipt of this. My brother and the gentlemen are to dine with the officers. Yours ever, Caroline Bingley. With the officers? I wonder my aunt didn't tell us of that. Dining out. That is very unlucky. Can I have the carriage so that I might go? No, my dear, you had better go on horseback because it seems likely to rain and then you must stay all night. <sighs> that would be a very good scheme indeed, Mama. If you could be sure that they would not simply offer to send her home. Oh, but the gentleman will have Mr Bingley's chaise to go to Meryton and the Hursts have no horses to theirs. I had much rather go in the coach. But, my dear, your father cannot spare the horses, I am sure. They are wanted in the farm. Mr Bennet, are they not? <clears throat> they are wanted in the farm much oftener than I can get them. But if you have got them today, Papa, my mother's purpose will be answered. She did at last extort from her father an acknowledgement that the horses were engaged. Jane was therefore obliged to go on horseback, and her mother attended her to the door with many cheerful prognostics of a bad day. Her hopes were answered. Jane had not been gone long before it rained hard. Her sisters were uneasy for her, but their mother was delighted. The rain continued the whole evening without intermission, Jane certainly could not come back. This was a lucky idea of mine, indeed, said Mrs. Bennet more than once, as if the credit of making it rain were all her own. Till the next morning, however, she was not aware of all the felicity of her contrivance. Breakfast was scarcely over when a servant from Netherfield brought the following note for Elizabeth. My dearest Lizzie, I find myself very unwell this morning, which I suppose is to be imputed to my getting wet through yesterday. My kind friends will not hear of my returning until I am better. They insist also on my seeing Mr Jones. Therefore, do not be alarmed if you should hear of his having been to me and accepting a sore throat and a headache. There is not much the matter with me. Yours, Jane. Well, my dear... If your daughter should have a dangerous fit of illness, if she should die, it would be a comfort to know that it was all in pursuit of Mr Bingley and under your orders. Oh, I am not afraid of her dying. People do not die of little trifling curls. She will be taken good care of. As long as she stays there, it is all very well. 
I would go and see her if I could have the carriage. Elizabeth, feeling really anxious, was determined to go to her, though the carriage was not to be had. And as she was no horsewoman, walking was her only alternative. She declared her resolution. <laughs> How can you be so silly as to think of such a thing in all this dirt? You will not be fit to be oh, seen Mama, when you get there. I shall be very fit to see Jane, which is all I want. Is this a hint to me, Lizzie, to send for the horses? No, indeed, Papa. I do not wish to avoid the walk. Such a distance is nothing when one has motive. Only three miles. I shall be back by dinner. I admire the activity of your benevolence, but every impulse of feeling should be guided by reason. And, in my opinion, exertion should always be in proportion to what is required. Yes, thank you, Mary. Lydia and I will go as far as Meryton with Yes, you. we shall. <laughs> Elizabeth accepted their company, and the three young ladies set off together. If we make haste, perhaps we may see something of Captain Carter before he goes. In Meryton, they parted. The two youngest repaired to the lodges of one of the officer's wives, and Elizabeth continued her walk alone, crossing field after field at a quick pace, jumping over stiles and springing over puddles with impatient activity, and finding herself at last within view of the house, with weary ankles, dirty stockings, and a face glowing with the warmth of exercise. She was shown into a breakfast parlour, where all but Jane assembled, and where her appearance created a great deal of surprise. That she should have walked three miles so early in the day in such dirty weather and by herself was almost incredible to Mrs. Hurst and Miss Bingley, and Elizabeth was convinced that they held her in contempt for it. She was received, however, very politely by them, and in their brother's manners there was something better than politeness. There was good humour and kindness. Mr. Darcy said very little and Mr. Hurst, nothing at all. The former was divided between admiration for the brilliancy which exercise had given to her complexion, and doubt as to the occasions justifying her coming so far alone. The latter was thinking only of his breakfast. Her inquiries after her sister were not very favourably answered. Miss Bennet has slept ill, and though up, was very feverish. Not well enough to leave her room. Mr. Bingley expressed with no small measure of concern. Elizabeth was glad to be taken to her immediately, and Jane, who had only been withheld by the fear of giving alarm or inconvenience from expressing in her note how much she longed for such a visit, was delighted at her entrance. She was not equal, however, to much conversation, and when Miss Bingley left them together, could attempt little besides expressions of gratitude for the extraordinary kindness she was treated with. Elizabeth silently attended her. When breakfast was over, they were joined by the sisters, and Elizabeth began to like them herself when she saw how much affection and solicitude they showed for Jane. The apothecary came, and having examined his patient, said, as might be supposed, that she had caught a violent cold, and that they must endeavour to get the better of it, advised her to return to bed, and promised her some draughts. The advice was followed readily, for the feverish symptoms increased, and her head ached acutely. Elizabeth did not quit her room for a moment, nor were the other ladies often absent, the gentlemen being out. 
they had in fact nothing to do elsewhere. When the clock struck three, Elizabeth felt that she must go, and very unwillingly said so. Oh dear, I shall call for the carriage. Elizabeth wanted only a little pressing to accept this offer from Mrs Hurst, when Jane, her face flushed, testified such concern in parting with her. Miss Bingley was obliged to convert their offer of a chase. Of course. You must remain at Netherfield for the present, until your sister is quite well. Elizabeth most thankfully consented, and a servant was dispatched to Longbourn to acquaint her family with her stay and bring back a supply of clothes. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Ballarat National Theatre's adaptation of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, and we'll join us again next week for another episode. This production is directed by Liana Skews, narrated by Olivia French, and adapted for audio by Elizabeth Bradford, Olivia French, and Liana Skews. This episode features the voices of Olivia French as Elizabeth Bennett, Ebony McLean as Charlotte Lucas, Ryan O'Connor as Mr Darcy, Paul Roberts as Mr Bingley, Elizabeth Hardiman as Mrs. Bennett, Chris Hiscock as Mr. Bennett, Liana Skews as Jane Bennett, Daisy Kennington as Lydia Bennett, Amelia Pawsey as Kitty Bennett, Kiralee McCalla as Mary Bennett, and introducing Nick Barker Pendry as Sir William Lucas, Marley Vanderbale as Caroline Bingley, Lana Spencer as Louisa Hurst, and Emma Wood as Mrs. Hill. This podcast was produced by Ballarat National Theatre on the lands of our traditional custodians, the Wadarung people. Cast recordings were made in the lands of the Wadarung, Bijigal, Boon and Wurundjeri people. Ballarat National Theatre acknowledges and pays respect to our traditional custodians and to their past, present and emerging leaders. 